You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. But I think the one, number one thing that we hold as far as uh, as, as strategy is, is finding optionality because we know things could go wrong. And so optionality is, is, is key. In other words, having an asset that you can um, that you can have other plans. If, if plan A doesn't, doesn't pan out to, to be what we thought, then you know maybe we got another ground, maybe there's another part, another target that we think it could potentially be uh, just as uh, as exciting. And so having those, those options, I think uh, are even more important than management, in my opinion. Welcome back to Money Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers, and joining me today is Tavi Costa from Crestcat Capital. He's been with Crestcat as a portfolio manager for about nine years, since uh, 2013, I believe. And Tavi is very well known over the internet and podcasts and YouTube channels for sharing his insightful macro uh, analysis, as well as his commentary on the mining and commodity sphere. But I invited Tavi onto the show today to talk a little bit more about how Crestcat makes money specifically in junior resource stocks, what they do before they deploy, what's their exit strategy, what do they look for in a company and management team. So with that introduction, Tavi, thank you for coming on the show for the first time. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Likewise. All right. Your due diligence process. I can see from your website that you take a team approach to due diligence before you invest in a junior resource company. Uh, Can you kind of walk us through what it looks like internally at your fund before you invest in a company? Well, there's a lot of things that are involved with this. I think this starts with uh, Quentin really uh, signing off on the geologist side. If, if Quentin really uh, appreciates what the asset it has and, and as far as the potential to be a world-class discovery, uh, we're not looking for small things. We're looking for something that we believe it's going to be much bigger than other people believe. And so if we are involved, obviously there is a case uh, in our end as far as the geology go. Um, and then um, after uh, checking that box, it starts to uh, the due diligence process on the management team and the technical team. Uh, technical team is, again, Quentin is the guy who would really work on that part. Uh, management team, I would say uh, all of us, is, is it's unfortunately, it's kind of subjective. It's it's regards a little bit of the history of the person uh, uh, and in really kind of gut feeling of, of, of meeting with them and, and seeing if they are onto uh, something that we believe they can they can handle the, the stress of, of, of owning a company uh, that we believe could be successful. And so uh, it's very rare that we come into a, an investment where we don't like the CEO, that we don't like management. We don't do turnarounds as you I think most people have uh, figured out. What we can do sometimes is uh, in some situations, we really like the, the asset. We think the management is is, is good. Therefore, we bring in some technical expertise uh, to uh, to help them to uh, uh, to come to fruition with their plans, and so um, that's really the beginning. Then it's all about sizing. After after we check those boxes, uh, we got to make sure that we like the sizing uh, and and how we would like to size. Usually, uh, you know, it depends on the position. We we like to start uh, as as uh, as much as we can. We usually. Uh, up to 20% partially diluted is is our goal. Uh, if we can get up to partially 20% uh, is is uh, it would be ideal. And that's that's just because, uh, especially in that sweet spot of sub $10 million, uh, that's usually how we, we try to negotiate things. Um, 
As far as uh, jurisdiction, I think jurisdiction plays a, a huge role. Uh, we usually have already uh, sort of uh, 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 places and areas that we would like to have exposure to. It's kind of rare that we get outside of those those regions uh, unless we think there's a new play district play that we think it's going to be uh, important to uh, start adding exposure to. Um, but most of the times we we stick with the places that we like, which is the Golden Triangle, the Yukon. Uh, we've got some areas in the uh, in Newfoundland. We got Nevada, Arizona is another part that we got a lot of investment, especially in the copper space. Um, Bolivia is a place, believe it or not, that we have a different view than a lot of people. We think it's a a, a good place to uh, to work with, especially if you got good connections. We avoid other parts of South America. We've got investments in Peru. Uh, in Brazil, and uh, one investment in Africa. We don't invest in Africa, uh, at least uh, outside of this investment that we already have. And uh, uh, Europe, uh, we have one in uh, a few in in, in Finlay. Uh, in sorry, in Finland. Uh, Finlay is the name of a company. <laughs> um, and uh, Australia is another place that we have investments too. So. I think that gives you some ideas about the due diligence. Obviously, there's a lot more to go into it. Uh, we also like to model those those what we think there is in terms of minerals, uh, so we can kind of have an idea of what we think it's going to be the the full potential of valuation at the peak of the Lausanne curve on exploration, which is usually 20% of the value of the mineral in the ground. And then we apply other adjustments when it comes to, uh, you know, risk of, of the dilution over time and the capex needed to put this into production, things like that, uh, that we think are going to be important to discount the value of that asset, even jurisdiction risk as well. And, and the risk of maybe technical team not being as savvy as other technical teams that we have. But I think the one number one thing that we hold as far as uh, as, as strategy is, is finding optionality because we know things could go wrong. And so optionality is, is, is key. In other words, having an asset that you can um, that you can have other plans. If, if plan A doesn't, doesn't pan out to, to be what we thought, then you know, maybe we got another ground, maybe there's another part, another target that we think it could potentially be uh, just as uh, as exciting. And so having those, those options, I think, uh, are even more important than management, in my opinion, uh, because uh, having an asset with a lot of optionality, uh, to me, is, is essential. So uh, I think that gives you some ideas of, of how we, we, we search for things. And one final thing is M&A. Uh, make sure that those companies have some sort of uh, uh, probability of M&A uh, uh, from, from the major companies. So, so, you know, majority of the companies we come in is, is because we think they are, they could be shocked by some of the majors. And so um, those are, those are the key points. I hope I'm not missing anyone, but I think those are the key points. Thank you for that, Tavi. I know a lot of funds in the resource space, they wait for that discovery hole before they take a chunk. But my understanding is your company will actually put up uh, some millions into earlier stage exploration companies, even before a discovery hole is published. Is that correct? Yes. And the beauty of now, though, with valuations where they are, is that you're able to find a company with already a discovery hole trading sub $20 million uh, market cap, which is unusual. You know, uh, uh, to me, it's 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 where uh, you know just the market is 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 giving us a gift right now to uh, put money to work in in things that we believe are probabilistically speaking in a, onto something very interesting. And so, 
but yes, uh, we view those as kind of call options uh, per se. Uh, those are prospective grounds that we think, again, have a lot of uh, interesting targets, not just one. Uh, and so we like to fund uh, those companies. Sometimes they're private companies. We've got a few private companies in our portfolio. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, and uh, chasing that first, uh, discovery hole and, um, the illiquidity but, of a private code doesn't bother your fund at all. Well, we don't have much, it's less than 5% of the fund. So I guess liquidity is, is, is not a, a real problem there. Um, and those are very small. So you're talking, you know, less than a million dollars type of company. So you're, you're funding that with, you know, hundreds of, of thousands of dollars. So it's not, it's not a. From a scale perspective, it's not the liquidity won't 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 really uh, you know won't won't really be a problem in terms of that. So, so when you invest in a junior miner, do you because you put out such great macro work? Do you start at top down, find a bullish commodity, then filter down into exploration opportunities that are exploring for that commodity? Is that where you start, or if you see a good geological team with a good thesis? Would you take a bite out of that company, even if you're not overly bullish on the commodity they're looking for? No, it has to be aligned with her macro views. Uh, we we don't invest on things that is that are not aligned with her macro views, and it's important to know. Even though people like to ask me questions about macro and and all that, uh, the gold part of our investments, the the precious metals uh, and and base metals investments that we have in exploration. Uh, you know, they're static. We're not, we're not, you know, really, we change some positions when things go wrong, or we change our views about an asset. Don't get me wrong. We will sell or, or, or buy more if we, if we change our view, but it's a lot more static than, than, than a macro book, right? A macro book is, is, is liquid. You, you can really change things uh, very quickly. You have to blend things on the other side. So, for a global macro fund, which has a sleeve of that into precious metals, um, precious metal strategy, uh, which is mostly exploration assets, uh, we have to treat that differently. So, you know, I hope that makes sense. But that's, uh, uh, yeah, um, yeah. So, how do you measure success? I know a lot of gold fund managers will just measure their success relative to the GDXJ uh, internally and with your investors. How do you compare yourself to, de- to determine if you're doing well? Well, benchmarks uh, help. I think GDXJ is is one of them, as you just mentioned. Uh, but there isn't really a good benchmark to what we are doing, correct? Because there's no benchmarks for exploration. So, um, so GDXJ would be the closest. Uh, if you look at the median market cap for GDXJ, is nowhere close to the median market cap of our of our holdings. So, uh, but but there's no alternative. So, you know, if you ask anybody, okay, what's the alternative? There isn't one. So. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, our portfolio is mostly an exploration, not because, uh, well, first of all, we think we have a, um, a niche strategy in terms of that, but also given our views on the macro side of, you know, we think gold will be trading higher, not lower five, 10 years from now. And so we feel comfortable holding those assets. And I think the biggest contrarian view about what we do as far as a fund compared to everybody else is that we take an approach of owning a lot of companies. And, uh, you know, we own, we have done over uh, 80 to 90 investments in, in the exploration space, invested over $200 million in the space. And so... Um, in this last year, Tavi? Last two years. Last two years. And so, and so uh, it might have been actually a little more than that. But uh, 
right now we have about uh, two, two, two plus hundred million in 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 the in the space. And so, uh, to us is, uh, or, or at least our funds, we also have separate managed accounts that should account for that. So, so that would be above two hundred. But uh, my point is, um, a lot of people wouldn't do that. They would think that's a headache. I don't want to, you know, deal with ninety companies in my portfolio. Uh, to us, it's a numbers game. You know, it, it's it's owning an asset that is is being run well that, that has a, an interesting target, uh, and uh, and we follow up with those companies. Uh, you know, Quinton has four, five, six calls a day on with companies updating, getting updates from them uh, on the technical side. I don't I don't get involved in the technicals. I got to run the macro side. Uh, so it's all complementary. Kevin and I are more macro and we work on quant models to help us to manage the portfolio. Quentin's more the technical guy on the geology, discerning new investments, looking at the uh, the plans that they have. And uh, the biggest concern we have, I would say, is 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 not that we don't like the ground, is, is finding management team that is open-minded to work with us. Uh, you know, we're very easy to work with, but there are situations where we uh, deploy capital in a, in a company and directly say, you know, this is where we would like to for you guys to drill. Uh, and they don't drill there. And so, you know, rather than getting in a litigation and, and all that, we just, you know, we say goodbye. And we, we, you know, this is just not worth our investment. And so it all depends on the story. But there hasn't that there has been some cases that we had to uh, uh, to divest. I've seen you refer to your fund as activists. So would that be an example of becoming activists with the companies? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of cases, and I would say uh, uh, people can ask the, the technical team of, of each of the companies we're invested. Uh, I would say that about from those 90 companies, about 60 of them um, uh, we're very close with. I mean, we you know we keep in touch with them all the time, uh, and the others are, are doing something more independently. Um, but but about 60 of them are very. You now we work closely, and I would say about. Tw- 40 of those 60, uh, we're, we're very close to them. Uh, and so, you know, sure, there's their core investments in our portfolio that are uh, that we've been working with them um, a lot more than other companies. Um, so it all depends on, you know, the level of success over time and uh, what we find. But uh, it's it's an exciting uh, time to be deploying capital in, the, in such a depressed market, in my opinion. It's, it's, uh, it's great. If you're a long-term investor, buying distressed assets here uh, with a lot of probability to, uh, to success, uh, to succeed, it's, it's, uh, to me, it's, uh, uh, it's where the opportunity lies ahead. And so what would be your fund's exit strategy? Do you have like a three to five year plan here coinciding with your macro view? Uh, it all depends on the case. I mean, if if a company per se, uh, so we we use models to to try to figure out. And then again, this is not doesn't mean the models are going to be correct, but it gives gives us a sense of 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 where we should be exiting or where the valuation of the company is relative to uh, to what we think it should be. And uh, if the model is is out of balance, meaning um, the market is is pricing the company at a higher level than we think it should. Which it happened actually maybe four to five times uh, because of this market has been so dismal over the last uh, two to three years. Uh, that that is not hasn't been a very frequent uh, situation, but it happened, and we divested of those investments uh, over time. Um, and uh, uh, but but the exit strategy will really depend. I mean, it's 
Um, I think, you know, I, I, I personally think that it's, it's, it, it depends on, first of all, we've, we haven't had much of m yet. So that I think that's going to play a big role into uh, exit. Uh, number two, uh, we would be happy to take things into production if it makes sense. We would be happy to consolidate things and find companies that have the infrastructure that can perhaps find some synergies or to uh, uh, to put some of the, the the deposits that we found into production easier um, uh, with an easier path. And, and we're certainly working on that on the sidelines. So. Um, it's difficult to say timing like that, but we we definitely have a, a plan for every company that we invest. Uh, we 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 think we think about that question a lot. Now, what's what's the peak of the Lasun curve for exploration for this company? Two three years from now, uh, and every company will vary. In average, is about three years, uh, but this is all dependent on market uh, activity as well. Do you like to buy companies that are in that second trough of the Lasan curve going into production? Do you buy pre-production companies? We do, uh, but but that's a smaller part of a portfolio given our views about the macro environment. As we get into the late, later stages of what we think we're going to be, um, yeah, I think we're going to be uh, locating a lot more capital into development. I just think that you know it's just the lack of of of. Uh, of folks covering exploration in general are just allowing a lot of inefficiencies. And, and that's where we found most of our best investments has been, have been in the, in that part of the, 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 the industry, I would say, um, you know, uh, we've had a lot of success uh, stories. Uh, um, and I would say uh, SK mining has been one of them. Newfound gold has been another one of those. Uh, Eloro has been another one of those. And so do you trim uh, those when they go up so much? I mean, SK went up tenfold, I believe, and newfound gold just was like a rocket. Do you trim them as they go up? How did you play those specifically? It depends on the story. SK mining, we, we didn't do it because, um, if you look at the, uh, what they have, I mean, it, we think it's just the beginning. Um, but tenfold is is all uh, on perspective, right? I mean, we bought this very early, so it is a tenfold for us. Uh, can that be trading at a three, four billion dollar valuation at some point? We think so, uh, and that's why we hold it. Uh, but again, with the news that we have today, shouldn't be. Uh, but you know, we think it will, and so you know, we like to hold it. Obviously, um, you know, as you get to a later stage, like ASCII mining is. Um, it's helpful because it's uh, it reduces a little bit of volatility relative to the other ones, and so uh, from a risk management perspective, it's actually uh, quite interesting because you got a higher probability of 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 of, of getting it right over time, but also uh, the volatility spectrum is it changes a little bit from the 10, 20, 30 million market caps, and so um, even though it doesn't look like, but it does. Um, no, but, but we, with trim other positions that we, we don't think we know that we believe they found everything that we think they have. And, uh, it just wasn't the case with ASCII, uh, definitely not the case with ASCII. Um, uh, but, uh, but there are opportunities to, uh, to sell in those, in those, uh, situations when you have, uh, a, a large move again, I mean, the majority of their investments are for the long term. So, um, you know, if we find a company like ASCII mining, uh, our goal is to stay with them for the long haul. So uh, I don't think there's much of a point. I don't think Eric Sprott made it, you know, billions of dollars uh, selling positions after the, they had a, a, a tenfold, right? I mean, I think he made money 
by holding on to uh, most of his winners over time. And so it's not just Eric Sprott. I think the majority of the capital made in the industry uh, came from folks that started exploration companies and did very well or uh, invested in very early stages of exploration companies and, and went through the whole uh, Lausanne curve, uh, uh, basically. And so, you know, I, you know, we, we like to, uh, if we think this quality and our opinion may change about SK mining and others, but that's not the case right now. We, we'd certainly very bullish about most of our portfolio, but there were cases where we sold off because we think we've seen enough, uh, we've seen, uh, all, all we think we, we would have seen. I mean, could you share about how your fund approaches exercising your warrants? Uh, I see your comp- your uh, fund's name in a lot of press releases. You do financings, you get half warrants, full warrants. So are there some thresholds of how much above the exercise price a stock needs to be trading at before you'll exercise? Or is it more on a case-by-case basis where you're talking to management, seeing their funding needs? Can you give us a little insight here, please? Well, that's a that's a good question, but it's very unique. It's hard to talk about. Um, I know it'd be very specific cases here. I would say um, you got to keep track a, of them too, right? <laughs> you got a long Excel sheet to keep track of all your warrants. Well, I, I just want to say, I mean, we have a whole team of 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 guys doing most of the programming of all all the stuff that we have, so we know exactly what what's coming up. We know the funds that we need and so forth, so we're aware of it. Um, but it's uh, uh, yeah, it's a lot of work, and especially right now, a lot of things have uh, have sold off significantly. So a lot of warrants are out of the money. So um, uh, which is fine, you know that that means we're, we don't have to fund them. But uh, it depends on the case. I mean, there are situations where uh, you know the strike is very close to the money. Uh, or it's in the money, but it's still very close to uh, to to going out of the money. Uh, but we know that the company needs capital to uh, to get their drilling for the season. You know, what are you going to do? Not not give them capital and, and not have them drill for the whole season. That's a position where we would certainly give the capital, and and will depend. Maybe we're going to let the 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 the, the strike uh, or the warrant expire worthless and and help them fund on a better situation for us. It, it all depends on the case, uh, but. Uh, uh, we're very much aware of their needs, their capital needs. That's something we track very closely. Uh, so we know, you know, in our list, what's the what's the capital need of the, most of those companies in the next six to twelve months, and uh, and so we're we're very much aware of what they need uh, most of the times. You know, we're not most of the times it's not it doesn't come to as a surprise when they need capital. So what about uh, hedging your portfolio because you're so bullish on the commodity and mining sector? Are there any internal hedges you carry within the fund? Yes, uh, precious metals fund is 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 mostly precious metals. So you know, not not uh, that's not the goal is not to be uh, hedge in that direction. It does have the capability of hedging, uh, but we don't want to hedge today just because of our views about precious metals in general. Um, and so we stay. Well, that one stay is is one hundred percent long at this point. Um, However, as I said, there's a flexibility to short as we get into later stages and we think things are getting frothy, we're going to get short. Uh, or global macro and long short funds, which have a lot of those investments as well, uh, that's a different story. That That's, uh, you know, we hold, uh, so we have a large book of tangible assets and then uh, we have shorts in, in the market. So we're short technology companies, companies we think are going to get squeezed by margins. We have long dollar positions and uh, so different things, a lot of macro related uh, positions. That's where I come in mostly. 
I listened to a gold royalty CEO uh, some weeks ago, and he was sharing about five years ago when he would be talking to funds. The funds did not care about what his company was doing on an ESG front. But now five years later, not only are they concerned what he's doing, they're having to manage the ESG expectations of the investors that are investing in their fund. Uh, how has the growing ESG movement with its demands affected your fund, if at all? Um, not much. I mean, I think we came into uh, to the mining space already at this kind of surge of ESG awareness. Um, so uh, no, nothing has really changed. I think uh, perhaps one or a few stories have had issues when it comes to uh, permitting their, their 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 projects for for whatever reason, uh, political reason in, in some ways. But um, it's it's actually I would say rare uh, in terms of the uh, the issues we've had. I think that we had other issues, but that that, that hasn't really been one. Um, and uh, you know. Uh, we, we respect the ESG policies and so forth. And um, we just, you know, I don't think we have had any any problems so far as, as investments uh, go, but uh, very much involved with, uh, you know, I think at some point we're going to see some bigger involvement from governments to uh, uh, right now we're so far away from that with the, the kind of, they're becoming more restrictive instead of helping companies to uh, develop and, and explore and produce uh, uh, minerals in, in general. But um, I think we're going to see a shift of that at some point where the government is going to be forced to even provide subsidies and, and things like that to make deposits become economically viable and perhaps help them to uh, uh, to be developed quicker. So I, I think we're uh, maybe in a transition from extreme uh, green revolution ESG policies to maybe into something that will look very different in the next five years. And so does that cause you to be bullish energy, traditional energy, hydrocarbons? It's it's tough because energy is different. Uh, energy has a shorter cycle. It might actually have a longer cycle this time because of the the political constraints that we have on, on, on investing in the space. But uh we take a different approach of, of on energy because we also think it's it's a real movement away from oil, um, um, but it will take time. And so, acknowledging this, we stay on very liquid names. So we have uh, most of our positions are liquid uh, in that in that in that side, meaning a larger market cap spectrum. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're bullish on on energy in general. I mean, they're very profitable businesses and. Uh, but we haven't taken the same approach uh, that we've done with precious metals. Uh, so it's just a different uh, investment strategy, but uh, similar thesis. Tavi, before you go, last question. Uh, are you bullish on the agricultural sector right now? On an anecdotal level here in Michigan, the farmers I talk to, they say expect higher food prices because our input costs, our diesel, our grains, our fertilizer, land, equipment, everything has gone up dramatically in the last two years. And that usually will translate into higher food costs. But the farmer warned me also, he said, Bill, sometimes we spend a lot and make a little if the prices roll over. Uh, what would be your take on the ag sector? Uh, we like agricultural commodities. They have gotten a bit here in the, in the last uh, weeks or so. Some of them are down almost double over double digits. And some of them uh, are, uh, I would say, not over about uh, 20 plus percent or so. So uh, it's been uh, it's been difficult, but it's uh, it's it's we made money on those investments, and we think they're going to be 
um, attractive over time. And so we've been buying the dip in, in a lot of those uh, uh, grains and, and uh, agricultural commodities and businesses in general. Um, but it's uh, it's been difficult recently. You know, a lot of them really sold off. Uh, but we, we're bullish. Uh, we like them uh, for macro reasons. Uh, usually in an inflationary environment, you want to own agricultural commodities. And so we like to have a basket. So we have the, the precious metals and base metals basket with exploration mostly and, and some developers as well and some producers. And then we have uh, a big chunk of oil and a big chunk of agricultural commodities. That's that's uh, that's kind of our book today. Uh, and then and then we have the hedges on the other side. And I'm referring to global macro in this case, not, not precious metals fund. Tavi, thank you for your insights today. What's the best way for my listeners to follow you online? Just go to Twitter and at Tavi Costa is my handle, or you can find us also on Cresket.net, our website. There's a lot of information about letters and research letters and in-depth research as far as our views. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on today's show, Tavi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.